0: Welcome to the Talking Leaves podcast. I'm your host, Miss Kyra, and we are returning for episode 10 of our mini-series about Homer's The Odyssey, and we're looking at book 10. Isn't it nice how our episode number lines up with the book number? Let's relish that whilst we can. In this book, titled Circe, The Grace of the Witch, which seems either a sarcastic title or a hint toward her rather sad past, we see, of course, Circe, a sorceress Odysseus encounters early on in his return home from Troy. This means we're still back in time. Remember, this story is not told chronologically, and it's not told by the same consistent narrator. In this book, we are continuing with Odysseus narrating and telling the story himself of his previous adventures. He's at the tail end of his journey, he's left Calypso's Island, he's talking to King Alcinous telling of his misadventures that has led him to where he is today. He retells specifically of his misadventures after leaving Polyphemus the Cyclops behind. They first land on Ilo, the island of King Ilos, who in addition to naming an island after himself is also the god of the winds. This is a great experience for Odysseus and his men, until it isn't, largely due to secrecy and distrust. Then they venture to the Lagostronians, which are giant creatures, and we already know how giants and Odysseus mix. This time, though, I will admit it's not Odysseus's fault. After quickly fleeing that scene, they speed away as fast as they can row and eventually land on the island of Aeaea, Circe's island. But before we begin our episode in earnest, who is Circe? Who are any of us, Really? With that existential crisis out of the way, let's talk about this lovely goddess, sorceress, witch, nymph, all of the above. She appears, according to my sources, in a variety of forms, sometimes as a goddess of magic, sometimes as a nymph, like one of her supposed potential mothers. Most often, she is depicted as a goddess of enchantment, as a sorceress, and she lives on the remote island of Aiea. There are different reasons and various myths about why she was exiled there, but one common thread is she was sent there for her treatment of Scylla, which we'll get to later in this episode. While the notion of sorcery later became associated with witchcraft, before, she was mostly just a tinkerer. She was a botanist. She played around with plants. She was dedicated to this craft, and when someone angered her, she utilized her skill to seek revenge. Understandable, right? Let's get to discussing the mischief and havoc Circe wreaks upon Odysseus and his men. We start this book off with a small summary of Odysseus's time with Ilos, the god of the winds. Aelos welcomes Odysseus and his men and listens to their tales of the Trojan War. Odysseus and his men stay with the god of the wind for a month. When they leave, the gracious Aelos gives Odysseus two gifts, a fair west wind that will blow the fleet of ships toward Ithaca, and a great bag holding all of the unfavorable stormy winds. The idea that nothing, no wind, can interfere with Odysseus getting home. They'll be blown straight back to Ithaca, as fast as the wind can take them. But Odysseus doesn't tell his men what's in the bag. Why? I don't know. Apparently, it's a secret or he doesn't want to tell them. Nonetheless, he doesn't tell them. Instead, he just takes care of steering the ship by himself for nine straight days. On the 10th day, within sight of home, he falls asleep from exhaustion and sleep deprivation. His men predictably, decide now is their time to find out what's in the bag. I mean, it is a giant bag given to them by a god, and Odysseus won't tell them what's in it. He must be keeping something from them. Treasure, goods. How dare he keep it from them after all they've done for him? So they open the bag, and you guessed it, all of the storm winds come roaring out, and they blow the ship backward all the way back, undoing their nine days of sailing. Odysseus, understandably upset, even though he really only has himself to blame, thinks, as Smoop tells it, to kill himself, which would be, as they say, extremely suspenseful if he weren't the one narrating and telling this story. So instead, Odysseus rows all the way back to Aeolus, and begs for more help. The king, god of the winds, refuses as he now realizes he was playing outside of his league and the gods have clearly cursed Odysseus or have some other master plan in mind for him. Yikes. So without any help, this time from the god of the winds, the Ithacans row for six more days and again see land, Lamos. This time they're at the land of the Lagostrones which are something between ogres and giants, Odysseus and his companions and their 12 ships stop there. And according to ThoughtCo, it is unclear whether Lamos is an ancestral king or the name of the place, but the Lastragonians, also known as the Lastragonians, live there. As if Odysseus and his men haven't already had enough excitement on this journey, the Lastragonians are not very welcoming. In fact, it kind of turns into a vampire diary situation when Klaus gets really angry, because when the men land, the king of the last dragones, Antiphates, greets them by falling on the first man, who was sent as a messenger, and drinking his blood. Not only that, the king Antiphates then summons all the other giant cannibals to join him, and he says, let's smash the 12 ships that are moored there, so that way they can drink everyone else's blood. The only ship to escape is Odysseus because instead of parking his ship right in front of the island, he parked it further away. So he and all the men on his ship are the only ones who escape and they leave quickly. I mean, they weren't keen on the cannibalism. Let's take a moment and recap the loss of lives so far. Odysseus and his 200 plus men leave Troy. They sail to Sisones to loot and cause other warlike mayhem. When they, the Sasonius, fight back, Odysseus loses 72 men. When they travel to the Lotus Eaters, they don't lose any, but they lose, not like I said last episode, four, but instead six men to Polyphemus. And now they lose all of the men except the ones with Odysseus. This is a startling downward trend. While we already know his men's fate, remember book one told us, it is a bit sad to see it happen. After leaving the cannibals and most of their companions behind, the 45 remaining men row until they reach the island of Aea, home of Circe. Odysseus scouts around and sees a plume of smoke rising from somewhere in the center of the island. Made cautious and careful by his last few adventures, he decides not to explore it alone. Instead, after hunting and killing a deer for dinner, he sends 22 men, including his friend Eurylochus, to explore. And as our text says, In the wild wood they found an open glade, Around a smooth stone house, The hall of Circe, And wolves and mountain lions lay there, Mild in her soft spell, Fed on her drug of evil. None would attack, Oh, it was strange, I tell you. But switching their long tails, They faced our men, like hounds, Who look upon their master When he comes with tidbits for them, As he will from table. Humbly, those wolves and lions with mighty paws fawned on our men who met their yellow eyes and feared them. While this is drastically different than what we've already seen at Calypso's island, with the animals hanging around outside here being lions and tigers and bears, oh my! Rather than what Calypso has, exotic birds and other seafaring birds, there are some striking similarities. They both live in a smooth-walled home, sort of a cave. It's wild. It's exotic. It's almost like the storytellers, or the Greeks were very clear about what evil goddess should look like. As the men walk toward the home of this goddess, they stand in her entryway and hear her low, beguiling voice as she weaves on her loom an ambrosial fabric sheer and bright by that craft known to the goddesses of heaven. And while most of the men are afraid to interrupt, one man, Polites, which is kind of ironic, said, Dear friends, no need for stealth. Here's a young weaver singing a pretty song to set the air a tingle on these lawns and paving courts. Goddess she is, or lady. Shall we greet her? And as our text reads, So reassured, they all cried out together, and she came swiftly to the shining doors to call them in, all but Eurylocus, Locus, who feared a snare, a trap. The innocents went after her. Circe greets them all after they call out to her, invites them in. She's so beautiful, so enchanting, and she's just a woman that everyone, immediately, except for cautious Eurylocus, goes in. Ruh-roh. Instead, Eurylocus hides outside and peeks through the windows and watches the men as they eat. Much like Penelope must do for the suitors in her own home, Circe seats them on thrones and lounging chairs, and she prepared a meal of cheese and barley and amber honey mixed with pramian wine. Sounds nice, right? Except for the next line. Adding her own vile pinch to make them lose desire or thought of our dear fatherland. This line about forgetting their homeland is familiar. The same idea happens with the lotus eaters. Clearly this is a significant and dangerous idea for the Greeks. It's very apparent that it was essential to always remember home, to return, to not forget what waited for you there. Whether this is mostly relevant to the Odyssey or a reflection of some greater cultural expectation for the Greeks, I'm not really sure. Regardless, it's an important message we as the audience are receiving multiple times, just as our hero, and by extension storyteller, intends. He, Odysseus, never lost sight of home, even after 20 years. Nothing, no goddess, no promise of immortality, no treasure could keep him from home this was his form of loyalty this was his great strength and while i might wish he showed loyalty in other ways that's a 21st century lens and i'll own it with this tangent done let's continue where cersei left off scarce had they drunk when she flew after them with her long stick and shut them in a pigsty body voices heads and bristles all swinish now though minds were still unchanged. So squealing in, they went and seriously tossed them acorns mast in Cornell berries, fodder for hogs who rut and slumber on the earth. Well, that seems extreme. They did interrupt her, underestimate her, and they didn't seem to learn from their prior experiences of entering someone else's home. But to turn them all into pigs? Clearly, someone has some issues with men because that transformation sends quite a message. In our version of the text, this is very nearly the end of the book. Eurylocus predictably runs down to the ship and tells Odysseus what he's witnessed. The witch goddess turned his men into pigs. 22 of the remaining 45 men are now pigs. That's not cool, man. Eurylocus wants to set sail and leave the witch and their pig friends behind, but no. Of course, Odysseus, the hero, wants to rescue them. I mean, this goddess isn't a cannibal, after all. She only turned them into pigs. Now, if she wanted to eat them, would that be cannibalism? I don't know. Nonetheless, Odysseus runs towards the house to save his men. And as our text explains, on the way, he met the god Hermes, who gives him a magical plant called molly. No, it's not what you're thinking. To protect him from Circe's power. Still, Hermes warns Odysseus that he must make the goddess swear she will play no witch's tricks. Armed with the molly and Hermes warning, Odysseus arrives at Circe's palace. Our version of the story continues to explain that Circe gave Odysseus a magic drink, but it does not affect him, and he threatens to kill her with his sword. Circe turns the pigs back into men, puts them all in a trance, and they stay there for one year until Odysseus finally begs her to let them go home. Now, this is interesting. This text says that Circe puts them all in a trance, which seems to indicate that these are the witches' tricks that Hermes warned Odysseus about, which he failed to avoid. However, in my research, and even from this little bit itself, it seems like Odysseus is not in a trance. If he's able to beg her to let them go, then he's not under a spell. While the Odyssey does not really give much detail on Odysseus and Circe's relationship after their initial encounter and after he makes her free his men, we can assume that they remain civil, because Circe allows Odysseus and his men to remain on her island for a year, where other sources say they were resting and feasting. In other myths, it's stated that Circe bore three of Odysseus' sons, and this itself becomes a tangled web of connection and family drama. Feel free to research this for yourself. For a condensed version of this tangled family drama, I recommend the YouTube video about Circe from the channel Mythology and Fiction Explained. Before we move forward, let's take a little bit more time to get some details on Circe, another woefully glossed over woman, aka villain in the Odyssey particularly in our version. To give credit where credit is due, most of the information about Circe is coming from two sources, classicalwisdom.com and Mythology and Fiction Explained, the YouTube channel I just mentioned. Known in Greek as Kerke, but when the name was Latinized, it became Circe. She is the daughter of Helios, the god of the sun, and two potential mothers here, Perse, a nymph, or the ancient, and ancient even more so than the Olympian gods or the Titans, the goddess Hecate. Back before men were even a twinkle in Prometheus's eye, Circe was born to Helios. She's also cousin to Zeus, the king of the Olympians, so you could say that Circe was born into quite a noble family. She's a granddaughter of at least two Titans. She's related to the sun, the moon, and the dawn. Big things were in her future, yet According to myth, she wasn't what was expected. Instead of being attractive with willowy limbs, song-like voice, like any other nymph, she was not attractive or seductive, according to, you know, these sources. Instead, she was short and she sounded like a squawking bird. This is likely where her name stems from, kirke, which possibly meant bird. Due to her lack of attractiveness, and purely my own interpretation, perhaps due to her lack of unwillingness to conform to the womanly expectations, she wasn't married off or given her own kingdom to rule. She was left to live with the Titans, but also left alone. Circe's abilities came about into both potion making and spell casting she quickly gained a reputation for trickery, for being ill-tempered, and skilled at casting spells on those who ridiculed and mocked her. Or essentially anyone who showed her any disrespect would find themselves transformed into an animal without the slightest effort on her part. According to some versions of her story, it is this crafting of the supernatural that ultimately led to her exile on the remote island of Aea, where Odysseus finds her. She was sentenced to an eternity on the island as punishment for practicing witchcraft on her fellow nymph, Scylla. This story, of course, comes in later myths, but in these later stories, she is the reason for Scylla's existence, a monster, a monster which Odysseus faces in book 12. While Circe is not the only goddess accused of transforming Scylla, there is a very famous painting which depicts Circe transforming the beautiful sea nymph Scylla into a monster. As the story goes, the sea god Glaucus was in love with Scylla, and he asked the sorceress Circe for a love potion with which to woo Scylla. Unknown to Glaucus, Circe was in love with him, and this potion presented the perfect way to get rid of this other woman. Circe gave Glaucus a potion which transformed the nymph into a sea monster. The very last line of our text hints at what is to come in in book 11. After Odysseus begs Circe to let him and his men go, after a year of recuperation upon her island, she tells him that they must first visit the land of the dead and hear a prophecy from the ghost of Tiresias. For some of you, I hope this name sounds familiar. Tiresias, although spelled differently here than maybe you've seen it before, is a famous blind prophet from Greek stories. He even appears in Sophocles' tragic play Oedipus Rex, or Oedipus the King. At this point, Tiresias is no longer in the land of the living, and in order to learn his fate, Odysseus must travel into the underworld. Dun-dun-dun. I bet this will be easy. We've come to the end of our episode. We saw Odysseus and his men encounter three more trials and suffer quite a few more losses. And it might be worth your consideration to ask, why do we finally learn the name of one of Odysseus's companions? Well, I can tell you it probably isn't a good thing. In our next episode, we'll take a look at book 11, which follows Odysseus into the underworld. Let's see what ghosts he encounters next time. Special thanks to these sources, greeklegendsandmyths.com, the YouTube channel Mythology and Fiction Explained, shmoop, thoughtco, and classicalwisdom.com.